Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. I have thankfulness to God for giving us his word. At the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And then, when we invite you to respond together, thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 16. As soon as he has finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants." As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of the, this, all the cities of Israel singing and dancing and meeting King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the woman sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of the thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At this time, kingdom kids are dismissed. Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. My name is Andrew. I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at the King's Church. Um, If you're new uh, and just maybe with us for the first time, uh, what we do here at the King's Church is we work our way through books of the Bible, and uh, this leads us to some really awesome and bizarre text. You know, there, I mean, in, in, this, in this passage alone, we're going to be covering three chapters at a very high level. Don't get too nervous about our time. Uh, but we're going to be moving through three chapters. I mean, we're going to see some javelin throwing. Uh, we're going to see uh, some marriage attempts. Uh, we're going to see a, an archery contest where a young man is running and, and somebody's just shooting a bow and arrow up in the air, kind of seeing where it lands. I mean, there's some interesting things happening here. Uh, in our text this morning. So welcome. We are glad you are here. Can we keep it real, though, this morning for a second? 
I want us to keep it real. We all long very deep down for meaningful relationships. Meaningful relationships. We long to be known and loved. But relationships are extremely challenging. How many of you have had a challenging relationship? There's six of you. The rest of you are lying. Welcome to church. This is a church. Do not lie in church. I think that that works. But we want beautiful friendships. We want long-lasting relationships that last a lifetime. But our friendships, relationships, marriages have one problem. Deep down, and it's a problem that every single one of them has, it's pride. At the end of the day, pride ruins friendships, relationships, and marriages. And we'll see in the next few moments that we have together, uh, we're going to come face-to-face with a particular manifestation of pride, which is envy. We're going to look at envy for most of our time. And I'm just going to be transparent with you. I struggle with envy. And I struggle with envy because I struggle with pride. You struggle with envy. And you struggle with envy because you struggle with pride. Let's put them together. We struggle with envy. We struggle with envy because we struggle with pride. I want to put before you this morning that for every New Testament point, there is an Old Testament picture. So for every New Testament point, there is an Old Testament picture. I want to suggest to you that uh, the point that is being pictured here in Samuel comes from James in the third chapter. So I'm going to read it to you, and as we work our way through the text this morning, I want this to kind of play as the background music for us, as kind of an elevator music, if you will, that's playing in the background over our time in Samuel. Let's read it together. James 3, starting in verse 13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Then the beginning of chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. For every New Testament point, there is an Old Testament picture. We're going to look at the picture in a moment, but our main idea this morning is really uh, this, envy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Humility leads to peace, love, and joy. Envy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Humility leads to peace, love, and joy. We're going to see this kind of across three movements. Two of them are the honorable heir and the mad king. 
honorable heir and the mad king. Then I'm going to take that story, tell it to you again with different characters, and then show you how you fit into that story as well. Does that sound fair? Okay, let's boogie, but first let's pray. Father, Father in heaven, to be standing here, to be with your people is a joy. Father, no one is in this room by accident. Father, I pray that what you want to be said will be said. What you want to be heard will be heard. Father, change us. Father, I pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. By your Spirit, for your glory and our good always. We pray in your name. Amen. All right. The honorable heir. So, here's where we're at. Just to kind of orient you and remind you. It's been this 40-day kind of weird, weird season for the people of Israel. They've been... Uh, face down with the Philistines, a giant is taunting them in a valley, and David, who was just anointed, steps up and says, I'm going to go take this giant down because the Lord is with us, and he's taunting the Lord, uh, and I got a slingshot. It's going to go well. So he goes out, slingshot, 100 mile an hour shot, Ian, Ian told us last week, it's wonderful, takes him down, takes his sword, decapitates the dude, cuts off his head, and uh, just starts walking around with this dude's head. It's, a, it's an epic scene. Um, and then at the, at the very end of that, Saul's like, okay, bring David to me. So they have a little conversation at the end of chapter 17, and right on the other side of that conversation, victory has been won, and what does Jonathan do? Let's look at it, starting in verse 1 of chapter 18. So as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, which is Jonathan's father, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Salvation is won on behalf of the people. And the first thing that Jonathan does is recognize who David is. He perceives that God had anointed David to be the great future leader of the people of Israel. Now, it can be easy to think, and what I grew up kind of reading this as, as David and Jonathan are kind of like peers, right? They're like, you know, two uh, post, post-grad students just hanging out, and, jo- and, and Jonathan makes this covenant to him, but they're peers, really. But that's not the case at all. Jonathan is actually quite a bit older than David. David, let's just think about it for a second, David was 30 years when he became king. And at that point, Saul had reigned for 40 years. So David must have been born in the 10th year of Saul's reign. Jonathan was already fighting with Saul during the third year of his father's reign. And according to Numbers 1-3, an Israelite soldier needed to be at least 20 before they fought in battle. So, I know this is a little bit gymnastics. Track with me, this is math. Okay, so in the 10th year of Saul's reign, when David was born, Jonathan was at least 27 years old. This means that Jonathan is old enough to actually be David's father. 
This isn't a peer-to-peer type relationship. This is a old seasoned war, a general in battle, a, a mighty man of valor turning and looking at David and bowing the knee. Jonathan is royalty. David is a peasant farmer. Jonathan is destined for the throne. David is his replacement. There are many, many reasons why Jonathan might actually resent David. And yet, Jonathan loves David like a younger brother. Think about this. Jonathan has spent his whole life thinking and living as though he's next in line. But after salvation is won at the hand of David, Jonathan recognizes that David is the rightful king. Let's bring that to contemporary times to help you feel that for a second in a small way, okay? You're, you're in line for a promotion at work, okay? You're a shoe-in. You have everything going for you. Your pedigree, your accomplishments, your ability to crack a good joke at the water cooler at the right time every day. You got the, you know, social element. I got this. You, you are known as the guy with the spreadsheets that can always make them work somehow. You know the little, like, equations that no one else knows. And you're just like, oh, what you need to do. And as far as sales go, I mean, you have so many sales that your coffee mug reads ABC. Always been closing, right? Always been closing. Not just that, you have seniority over the rest of the staff. And a position became available, and you are next in line. But then, you find out that the owner of the company has decided to go with an outside hire. But not just an outside hire that makes sense, but an outside hire that on paper is unimpressive. I mean, sure, this guy grabbed a bear by the beard and killed it. That's David. Right? But most of his life is lived in just absolute obscurity, tending sheep in an inconsequential town. That's the guy that's going to be hired for the position that you've been waiting for. How do you respond? There's two ways you can respond. Envy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Humility leads to peace, love, and joy. How does Jonathan respond? He accepts it. He recognizes it. He lays down his royal robes, which is essentially the equivalent of him giving the crown to David. This crown belongs to you. This crown belongs to you. Why? How would he do this? It says it in the verse. It says it in the text in verses 1 and verse 3. It says he loved him as his own soul. Loved him as his own soul, which I think is an illusion, like most of the story is, to the Pentateuch, to the law, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jonathan is doing because real love offers no room for envy. No room. We'll come back to it. But let's put this together. After seeing salvation won through David on his behalf, Jonathan recognized David as the Lord's anointed, as the rightful heir, and he bends the knee. He knows that complete surrender is the only appropriate response. So he lays down his robe, which is another way of saying he lays down his status, 
then his sword, then his bow, the tools of his trade. He lays down his trade. He lays down his defenses. Brothers and sisters, hear me. I wonder this morning if you are not holding on to your robe, holding on to your sword, holding on to your bow, placing your hope in things that will let you down time and time again, and then because you're clinging so white knuckle to those things, when anything attacks them, you respond in pride and envy as the default response over and over and over again. But I want to remind you, a greater salvation has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. And the only appropriate response is complete surrender. Complete surrender. You can step off the throne and entrust yourself to Christ. He's a far greater king than David ever was. And the throne was never yours to begin with. So living that way is a delusion. It's a delusion. So, let's keep moving and grooving. Jonathan gives us a picture of a faithful son. And First and Second Samuel is really all about sons. What are these sons doing? Some are up to no good. Some do good for a little bit, but then end up letting us down. But let's see what David is doing in verse 5. He says, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. This is a big promotion, by the way. He was just tending sheep and fighting bears and whatever else he was doing out there. Singing songs, learning the lyre, which will come in. But he got a massive promotion. Now he's a general. Now he's been placed over the men of war. And it says, this was good in the sight of all the people and in sight of Saul's servants. David is doing here what Saul should be doing as king. And it was good. They saw it. It was good. But while everyone in Israel is pleased and delighted and loving, all three chapters, love, love, love. Everybody loves David. Everybody except one person, Saul. It's like he got a 99% Rotten Tomatoes. But 1%, Saul, doesn't like the movie. It's like, nah, nah, I don't like it. Saul should be rejoicing. All of the things that David is doing are wonderful for the people of Israel, but Saul can't get there because he is a proud, envious, murderous man. And we'll see how that is actually his undoing, which turns him from a once promising king into the mad king. Point two, mad king. Here he comes. The best, the best point name of all time, the mad king. Picking up in verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel, and they're singing and they're dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. This is a time of celebration. 
last chapter, all the people are just hiding in fear. Their knees are shaking. One man goes out, wins salvation on behalf of the people, and now rejoicing has begun, but Saul can't get there. It should be a time for dancing and music and joy, but it's not. I'm kind of anti-tambourine as a person, but the Scriptures say that I cannot be anti-tambourine. I mean, these folks have tambourines in the streets. They're having a good time. They're singing this wonderful little song, which maybe next week we'll write a quick song and we'll sing this, you know? But the song, Saul has struck down thousands, David has ten thousands, and Saul's response, remember, there's only two options. There's only two options. Envy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Humility leads to peace, love, and joy. And verse 8 says, Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. But why? Why was he so displeased? Up until this point, we've seen Saul's pride. It's been right out there in front. But now, his pride has given birth to envy. C.S. Lewis calls pride the essential vice. The essential vice. He says in Mere Christianity, it is through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It should come as no surprise that in James, we're told that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. And envy is closely related to pride, always standing near it. And we live in a world propped up on pride. Pride. And we live inside of structures that are designed to make you envy. Comparison. What do they have that I don't have? Why are they having such a good life when I'm not having such a good life? Why do their days go this way when my days go that way? On and on and on. And it erodes us. If you sow this into your life, you will reap this in your life. It will destroy you as it's destroying Saul. Thomas Aquinas, an old head, says this about envy. This is a good definition. Sorrow for another's good. Sorrow for another's good. Envy is self-destruction. You could say it another way. Envy is self-deconstruction. Envy is the opposite of love, the opposite. Think about these two sentences. Think about this for yourself. Love says, I'm happy when you're happy, and I am sad when you are sad. Envy says, I'm happy when you're sad, and I am sad when you're happy. Romans 12, Paul puts it this way. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Listen to this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. I wonder, do you have trouble Rejoicing with those who rejoice. 
when they get a promotion, when they get a relationship, when they have a child? Can we rejoice with those who rejoice? Or has envy so gripped us that we cannot get there? We need to repent and believe the good news of the gospel again this morning. So, it should come as no surprise that we are about to witness the absolute unraveling of Saul. Verse 10 says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did this day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. Here we go. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him, not once, but twice. David evades him twice. So Saul is like, okay, I got to deal with this David issue, okay? So I'm going to try to uh, just kill him. That seems right. I'm just going to kill this guy. And if you're, if you're paying attention or you've read the scriptures, this is the story that's told over and over and over and over and over. Pride leads to envy. Envy leads to hate. Hate to the dark side, right? It leads to murder. Like, this is how I deal with this problem, Okay? David evades him twice. In verse 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David because he knew, he knew the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence. Okay, my spear thing didn't work. Let's try a different tactic. Let's switch up the approach. I'm just going to make him the commander over a thousand, and then when he goes out there, the people, the Philistines, will take care of him. But instead of solving his problem, it made it worse because now David is experiencing even more success, even more success. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw, Saul saw, that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. This irony is so thick. David is doing what Saul should be. Saul is too busy in his fields to do the right thing. He's too consumed by envy. And David is going in and out before the people, which is what the king was supposed to do. By the way, sidebar, when David stops doing what a king is supposed to do and he stops going in and out before the people, there's trouble in River City. There's trouble in Jerusalem, right? We'll see that January. We'll see that in January. Stay tuned. It's riveting. So all, Paul's, all Saul's uh, strategies are backfiring and the Lord's anointed will rise. So, what does Saul do? Over the next two chapters, over ten times, he cooks up strategies to kill David. Okay? We're going to fly through these. Because y'all were like, we're still in chapter 18, and I am looking at the time. Okay? So, let's fly through these real quick. So, David evades the spear twice. I think that's interesting for a couple reasons. What state of mind do you have to be in for, in the king's court, a spear to be thrown and everyone's like, no, oh, Saul's having a rough day. What do you, wh- that's insane. This happened twice. We'll come back to that. Saul sends David to the front lines. We looked at that. Okay, just send him out in battle. Then Saul tries to marry um, uh, David off, right, to his older, oldest daughter, which should hyperlink you to the book of Genesis, big time, okay? Saul tries to outsource the murder. Saul gives his daughter... Uh, a daughter who actually loves David, which is interesting, hyperlinked to Rachel, see Genesis. This has all happened before, and it's happening again, okay? And 
And David says, oh, he's, so, he's, he's humble before the Lord. And he says, who am I that I would become the king's son? And the king's like, okay, I'll make you a wager. You go out there and you bring me, uh, I'll, I'll let you read it on your own. There's, there's, some, there's some children present, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll dial it back. Let's just say he had to uh, use the sword to bring back 100 items. David comes back, and think about that. That plan is to kill David. He, there's no way he's going to be able to bring back 100 items. He comes back with 200 items. This is, again, meant to tell us everything that, he, that Saul is trying. David is succeeding far and beyond, right? So David marries the daughter. But then he gets together uh, the court, and he says, okay, now y'all go try to kill him, Right? He tries to kill him. That's in 19.5. Look at this. Jonathan has to actually remind Saul, and Saul has like, oh, I guess you're right. That does make sense. He reminds him in 19.5. He says, for um, he took his life into his own hands, speaking of David, Jonathan to Saul, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then, are you, why then will you sin against this innocent blood by killing David without cause? He reminds Saul of reality, and for a second, Saul's like, yeah, I guess, you know, you got a point there. But then immediately following that, he gets the interns together, and they decide, okay, we're going to send these messengers out, and we're going to try to kill David at his house. So what was that, like, a, like a, over a weekend, and he changed his mind? So fickle, but envy is unraveling him. He's not seeing reality rightly. So he calls David back into the throne room, you know, and he starts, uh, you know, playing the liar again. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm standing up here and I'm playing the guitar and Pastor Ian throws a spear at me, like, we're going to have to work through some stuff. The staff meeting is going to be awkward, okay? I mean, the first two times, I get it. You know, honest mistake. But three times, and I'm starting to think you're aiming at me, dude. So after this moment, David flees. He's out. He has left the building. He goes back to his house. Not a good hiding spot. And so Saul sends messengers to the house. They surround his house, and they're about to kill him. And David's wife hides them. Hides them, takes a household idol, places it on his bed. Which, again, should sound a lot like a story I've heard before. This is Jacob. He's on the run. This is all supposed to help us orient the story in the greater story. Okay? But then Saul chases David to Ramah. And after all of this attempted murder, after all of this attempted murder in this moment, uh, he goes to Ramah, and Saul himself begins to have a spiritual experience where he begins to prophesy, which I find really interesting. He begins to prophesy. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that in this moment, uh, Paul or Saul is having a change of heart. I would file this under the category of Matthew 7, 21 to 23. I'll read it for you. This is what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Saul ain't doing that. I can tell you that for free. On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Saul has an experience. It obviously doesn't lead him, lead him to repentance because in, verse 10, or in, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we see Saul placing David on a hit list, and then we see Saul actually beginning to hate his own son because his own son loves David. Okay, that's a fly-through. Read it, read it on your own time. Riveting. But I want you to see that the author is telling us that we've heard this story before and we're going to hear it again. Think Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Leah and Rachel, Joseph and his brothers. Real fast. That's just one book of the Bible, y'all. I think human history. This is the story. There's two ways we respond. Envy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Humility leads to peace, love, and joy. So with our remaining time, I want to tell you the story again. But I want you to know that you have heard this story before, and you will hear it again. In fact, you will live it again. Here we go. The Savior King, Matthew 3. Jesus is baptized, and a voice from heaven says, Behold, my son. David was anointed. Then, immediately after he's anointed, he's driven into a 40-day wandering. There are 40 days before David slays Goliath. We've heard this story before. Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we have our Savior King. The true and greater David has come. He is here. Matthew is telling us loud and clear this is who we're looking at. But then we also have honorable heirs. Just as in the same way that Jonathan kneels down before the king, Immediately when people encounter Jesus, who end up following him, what do they do but leave their nets? They drop their nets at the feet of Jesus. He is the one. He's the long-expected Messiah. We will follow him. But there's honorable heirs. We see this in John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist do? As the ministry and reputation of Jesus is growing throughout the region, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, of Jesus, what does he say? Started uh, in John 3, 28 to 30, listen to this. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. Friends, the shift from envy and pride to humility begins there. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his joy, this joy of mine is now complete. What does he say? He must increase. I must decrease. Jonathan says to David, you must increase. I must decrease. But then there's also mad kings. Look at this. How many attempted murders we see. You can take a photo and review it if you want. But just look at this for a second. We've heard the story before. Here come the mad kings. The ones that Israel is looking to for leadership are trying to kill the one that they're supposed to be leading them to. 
And why are they doing this? Pontius Pilate, when Jesus is on trial, perceives very astutely in Mark 15, 10, he says this, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Okay, in closing, what about us? This is a story we've heard before. Brothers and sisters, this is the story we live now. We live now. And back in chapter 20, we see this scene. Jonathan goes to David and says, you know, I, I'm not sure if my, my dad is really against you. He's all cloak and dagger about this. And David says, no, your, your father wants to kill me. You know, the third spear thing. Like, he's out to get me. So, they devise a plan. David goes and hides, and he tells Jonathan to tell his father that he had to go to Bethlehem for a sacrifice. He says, after three days... If you do not hear, if, if, if Saul responds with anger, you will know he wants to kill me. And then you come, you bring the bow and arrow. They, I'm, I'm so grateful for cell phones. You bring the bow and arrow and, and we'll communicate that way so I'll know if it's safe for me to exit. Right? So Jonathan goes. He's in the court of Saul. Saul on day one, oh, well, maybe uh, David is uh, unclean. Maybe he's been in battle, he's been near blood, and he's unclean, so he can't come to the court. Uh, day two, he starts questioning, getting angry about this reality. He gets so angry that he actually turns on his own son. Listen to this, picking up in chapter 20, verse 30. It says that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, because Jonathan and David had worked out this plan. And he said to him, you are a son of a perverse and rebellious You know when you start like calling out the mother of your children, this is not good. This is like old school, Old Testament cursing. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do you not know that I have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, remember, you aren't going to be king. You should be feeling what I'm feeling. And instead, what does Jonathan, Jonathan feel? Anger towards his father for this unrighteous thing. Then he goes out. It says that from that day forward, Saul is against Jonathan. Because Jonathan has made a covenant with David to protect him. Jonathan has identified with David. Shoots the arrows. David emerges safe. And they realize from this moment forward, David is going to be in hiding their relationship, their friendship is going to be long distance. And they grieve over that reality. But I wonder if you know that our Savior has won a battle. We either give our lives away to find them, and we join in the song, or we remain full of pride and self-destruction. See, David in this story is spared. And all throughout the story of David, we'll see... God continues to spare David because he would not spare his own son. David lived and walked right out of the cave. Jesus is killed, but he walks out of the grave. And we are one with him. So we recognize him as king, and that makes us honorable heirs. Who can expect the mad kings of this world to do their worst. Sometimes I think that when we face suffering and persecution on the, for the sake of Christ, that something strange is happening. 
But that is no indication that the Lord has left us. In fact, that is evidence that the Lord is indeed with us when we face those mad kings and their envy. There's two responses to the king. Envy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, but humility leads to peace, love, and joy. I love the refrain that Derek shared at the beginning from Romans 8.31. I'll leave you with this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? There is no need to envy. Pride is a fool's game. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, you are perfect and holy and righteous, and we are full of pride. Father, I pray that you would cultivate humility in our midst so that we can rejoice with those who rejoice, so that we can mourn with those who mourn, and so that all of the self-focused living cannot stand in the way of our community and love that we share with one another. Father, you have sacrificed yourself and blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Father, I think the only response we can have is gratitude and thanksgiving and total surrender. You are our king. We are your people. Father, I pray that we would leave thinking through the moments where our heart is prone to wander to pride and envy. And instead, we would turn to you and then walk in humility, freedom, and joy. Pray this in your name. Amen.